Welcome to Linux Link Radio by TimeSys, the podcast for embedded Linux developers. Okay, so uh, welcome to Linux Link Radio by TimeSys, a podcast for embedded Linux developers. My name is Maciej Halas. I'm uh, on a product management team, and uh, with me here is uh, Gene. Hi there. Um, today, uh, we're going to uh, cover a number of topics. Uh, this is our third episode. Um, we got some uh, feedback from um, well, some of you um, asking us to uh, do a, a bit of introduction as to what we're going to uh, talk about, and uh, we'll actually uh, come back to that um, list of things that we talked about at the end. Um, so, Gene, you want to cover what we're going to talk well, about today? I mean, that sort of implies we know what we're going to talk about before we start, yeah. and then we have some, some ability to remember it long enough to <laughs> wrap it up at the end. But no, I mean, today we're going to talk about uh, getting things like the host environment set up if you've just uncreated your board or open up the, the, the wrapper on your board. And as we go through that, we're going to sort of discuss what, what works well, what doesn't work very well. I know we're going to touch on SIGWIN as well. I, we do have a lot of folks out there that do their development on Windows. And if you want to be successful in doing that at all, you typically use SIGWIN, which is uh, like this nice POSIX emulation layer. I mean, one of the nice things, not to get too far off topic, but you know, one of the great things about SIGWIN is that once you install it on your system and you get that bash shell, you're at least freed from using the standard Windows uh, command line prompt, which is yeah. uh, pure evil compared to, to what uh, SIGWIN has to offer. Absolutely. So uh, let's start with um, talking about... Um, well, uh, a bit of setup that's going on around um, a, uh, a Linux distribution of any kind when you try to get it um, installed on a, on a host machine. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, we should probably talk about a bit more about our assumptions. Um, and the assumptions are that there is a, a target platform mm-hmm. that customer can um, connect to, yeah. um, that the target platform comes with um, some sort of a bootloader, we're mm-hmm. not going to talk today about how to get a bootloader on a card. That that may be a, actually a good topic for another session. That would be. I mean, that that's that's a half an hour, forty five minutes, right there. Yeah, yeah. And um, on the host side, um, our assumption is that um, there is uh, either Linux or Windows based machine mm-hmm. that um, has enough disk space, of course. Yes. Yeah. So for the BSD and Mac OS X guys, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> We might get a little bit close, but... Maybe one day. Yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> okay, so on a host machine, there's um, several... Um, after after you install the uh, distribution of any kind, um, you uh, want to be able to uh, get some of the content of that distribution that, that you installed on a host machine um, across the network to your target platform. Um, for that, there are, unfortunately, or fortunately, some services that have to be put in place and those services would greatly vary um, based on um, specific uh, deployment scenario mm-hmm. or, or how you want to work with the target. Yeah. Well, I mean, but there's some there's definite commonalities. I, I mean, most boards will download their kernel via TFTP, which, depending upon your distribution, and actually most distributions don't have TFTP installed by default. You need to, to go out and get whatever packaging system that your board happens, you know, your sorry, your distribution has to be using and install TFTP. That's usually the one that trips people up. And, and then, you know, of course, if you're doing a um, anything that uses a remotely mounted root file system, it's going to be done uh, via NFS, the yes. network file system. And that's usually installed. I mean, most people have NFS. 
Yes, and uh, what's actually uh, interesting about uh, the TFTP service is that even though it's installed in, on most Linux systems, it's disabled by default. Oh, yeah, that's right, because so it is quite insecure. Exactly. So you have to um, edit the uh, specific file under Etsy subdirectory um, and, um, well, change a configuration option from disabled uh, yes to disabled no. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, um, the, in, yeah the inverse logic has tripped up. I, I don't know how many people... <laughs> at least yeah. 50% of the people call in it, and that confuses them right off the bat because they see the word yes and they think, hey, it's enabled. Yeah. And no, I mean, the flag says disable. I mean, even though they read it disabled, and it's it's interesting. You know, the other thing, talk, talking about security, is that uh, one of the safest things you could, well, not safest, but one of the fastest ways to get your system set up is simply to turn off the firewall. Uh, I have untold number of folks that are out there, uh, and they have a computer that's behind a firewall at work, and uh, you know, always goes out through some proxy, but they're still running the default firewall that ships with their desktop Linux distribution. But most of the time, I think Red Hat or Fedora Core have that firewall. It's yeah. really tight turned on, and so as a result, you know, the, the user will get everything set up correctly, and the board will try to connect and you know via TFTP, and uh, only two ports are open on that. On that machine, and, and there's no clear indication of what the problem is. So you have to know where to look and, and what to pay attention to, to uh, uh, go around this particular issue. Oh yeah, it is. It's totally silent because TFTP is never invoked, and it's not as though uh, otherwise the system would be completely overwhelmed that the firewall logs rejected you know right. connection attempts. I guess you you know it's the same thing. I guess you probably could configure it to do it that way. Uh, but that's sort of, that just seems yeah. more trouble than it would be worth. Yeah, yeah especially for standard time. Yeah, distribution. Yeah. So uh, TFTP is one of the services that um, you usually have to have in place just to get a binary Linux kernel across the network to the target platform. Mm -hmm. But um, once you have uh, um, the kernel on the target um, and you start booting it, um, there are other services that you that you need to have set up on your host machine mm -hmm. uh, for that image to to work correctly. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you need your well, you need your TFTP. Uh, um, sorry, your DHCP server and NFS, and then depending upon if uh, what you're booting, a lot, a lot of x86 boards boot using PXE. Yep. So you need to have a PXE service running, and uh, getting those set up is one of those things when we look at people uh, and look at people's usage patterns takes them sometimes longer than uh, than anything else in the process. Yes. Uh, you know, in fact, one of the things that we notice, especially, you know, you mentioned board startup and DHCP, you know, another classic uh, stumbling block we get is, you know, folks will get their board up and running and then all of a sudden they'll, they'll have it set up with a static IP address and then they'll set it up so that it queries for one. And then they get some random address, and they don't understand why that's happening because they have the DHCP server running, and they have it running with the correct parameters, and they believe they set up the .conf file to respond to the MAC address, of the, and they, they have everything right. And you know what? They do. Yep. The problem is, is they don't understand that the DHCP protocol is a first response wins. So what happens is that their machine usually gets beat by whatever's running out on the campus. Yep. Uh, and that's... Um, uh, that's an unfortunate thing to run across because it seems so mysterious. Yep. And that, you know that's one of the reasons why we we recommend uh, that you splurge for the whole nineteen dollars and get a um, get another Ethernet card and and dual home your machine. Because yep. that way you can run. And even if you're like cranky about your firewall and if at work they have fairly difficult measures with respect to your firewall, at least you can turn off your firewall on the second adapter um, and leave that one open and just run your run your boards on you know. 
Yeah, some, will, some network, some other network. There will be no confusion uh, from the uh, well, from target standpoint uh, yeah. as to what IP address it gets and uh, what subnet it lives on. Yeah. And, and, and DHCP works uh, much cleaner. However, this is all um, assuming that you have um, access to the target uh, right on your desk. Um, and in many uh, situations, you have a target platform sitting in some lab. Um, and uh, you can connect to that la- lab from your host machine, from your desk machine. Yeah. But um, <coughs> in, um, in in such environment, uh, you have a clearly defined subnet where where you can put the target platform on. Yeah, the playground. And that becomes a bit more tricky, but but that that varies so much that there is no one approach that we could um, explore here yeah. that would help out um, users. Well, fortunately, uh, companies that find themselves in that position uh, usually have, I would say in all cases I've encountered, have very competent IT staff. Mm-hmm. And so they're able to do something like publish a a little board bring up guide and the instructions to do things are, are really well, really well done uh, so that you know the parameters of the playground and then how to set things up so that you don't yeah, cause any problems. And this is actually a very, very good setup because uh, it's secure. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody knows how to get there. And if you have an IT um, person that can put up a, a uh, readme on how to connect to those target platforms for you, yeah, you're all set. Yeah. Um, so we talked about NFS service. We talked well. Actually, we talked about DHCP service, and you mm-hmm. can start it either as part of a system or you can start it on a specific. Um, uh, Ethernet interface yes. um, a- as a daemon. Yes. And that way you can narrow down um, the um, specific um, adapter, Ethernet adapter, that, that the HCPs are sent to. Yes. Yeah, so you can do things both because I guess the other funny thing about that is if you're not, you know, dual homed or uh, sometimes you end up serving Ethernet, you, you end up serving DHCP addresses against your campus network. Right. Um, which is kind of funny. Um, <laughs> Uh, until the IT people show up, and then, then for some reason they don't find it all that funny. Yeah, um, yeah but that's a, a definite thing. You set that up with there's an environment variable. It's called DHCP args, and it's usually I know Red Hat systems. It's in um, the files. You put, there's a DHCPD file inside of etc sysconfig, and you can put DHCP args equals in the name of the adapter, and then the right thing will happen yeah. uh, when you restart the service, and that'll that will save you a lot of effort. Yeah. You know, another configuration thing. I guess what we're talking configuration and and uh, security that would make you know minimal amount of security is you know we find out that you know, people look at the NFS and so if you remotely re- you know, mount your file system of course you have to have an export in your NFS you know slash etc slash exports has some NFS directory in there that you need to, to export to and or you need to export and what I found is the users will go through a lot of effort to set that up correct they'll put in you know only the IP addresses that are allowed to, to contact they'll fill in you know, just the exact directory that it needs to go to. And when I see those, those are the people that generate usually the most amount of um, uh, requests for help because things don't match over time. And so that's one of the things for, for NFS is usually the simpler you make it, the better if you just make it, you know, forget about specifying IP address, just put a star there yeah. and export the top level of your uh, root file system. So a lot of people store the root file system in, in their op directory. So all you have to do is export slash opt, and you've automatically exported everything underneath slash opt. And that way, if you add another file system, you don't have to, right. 
it, it makes life a lot easier. I agree with you 100%. And if you, especially if you have multiple root file systems on the oh, same yeah. host machine and you have different targets that want to uh, uh, connect to that to, to those different root file systems, yeah. especially that you can use the DHCP um, daemon to serve a, a specific location on your host machine um, that the target platform is going to use um, to mount the root file system over the network. Yeah. So, so that part is already serviced by DHCP. So, from the NFS standpoint, uh, exporting the entire root file system makes sense. Yeah. yeah that makes it does make your life a lot easier. Um, there are so there are some interesting things uh, about setting up NFS uh, service, though. There are several services that have to be started. Um, and they have to be started in a specific order. Yeah. Um, there is the uh, NFS um, NFS lock service mm-hmm. that you have to start first, uh, followed by NFS um, start or restart, if you like. But um, that that's confusing to many of our customers. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't pay attention to uh, which service gets started first, and um, then they see different problems on the target because of... Uh, or target not being able to to mount root file system via NFS. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's that's the classic. And the other thing too is if uh, you ever get you know, nine tenths of the errors that you get out of uh, NFS on the target, very difficult to debug. Uh, they really aren't very informative. Uh, most of them boil down to you know to you know two two big causes, right? Can't contact the machine, yeah. and if it can't contact the machine, it can't mount the 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 permissions. Correct, the correct mount point because yeah. of permissions. And that's where, uh, you know, I found for all the crazy things you can try to do to diagnose that, if you do a tail, tail-f on Varlog messages, uh, um, uh, D, uh, sorry, NFS is wonderfully verbose. And it'll tell you whether, you know, a board is making contact. And if a board is making contact, it'll tell you what it was trying to mount and why it failed. Uh, and it's, it usually has to do with permissions. And uh, exactly the same actually applies to uh, DHCP. If you don't know the MAC address of your target platform, oh, yeah. but you sit on a dedicated subnet, what you can do is you can start DHCP daemon, power up your target platform, and look into uh, Varlock messages for um, um, well requests for uh, IP address. And, and usually you will see a MAC address of a target platform that requests the IP address. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, for how lazy I am, <coughs> you know, I just simply cut and paste. You know, I, 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 I crank up the board, <laughs> let it let DCP deposit that in Varlog messages, and I just because I run it tail f in, a, in an external window, and just cut and paste it and put it in my file and and make it easy on myself. Uh, it, it just it, it's a huge time saver. Um, but you know, the other thing too, I guess while we're while we're sort of digging down there, uh, the other variant of questions or problems you run into is whenever. You don't get anything in Varlog messages. You yeah. start your board up, and nothing happens. Yeah. And you know, for that, I found, you know, for myself, I use TCP dump, and you can turn on TCP dump. I'm sorry, TCP dump on a certain adapter, which is really great if you have a dual home machine. That's why having a dual home machine makes life easier for you. So that nineteen dollars, good idea. Um, and then you can turn on for a certain adapter, and then you can watch the traffic come across the the network. I don't know how many times people have set their machines up, they turned off their firewall uh, manually, right? They just they stop the firewalling service. And if you're using a Red Hat machine, you just use the check config, right? So someone will run check config 
or someone will just turn the, the firewall off, and then they then start it up, they restart their machine for whatever reason, and then their firewall starts up again, and they forgot that they stopped their firewall, and then their board doesn't boot. And uh, you, you talk, these, these folks, you talk to them, and sometimes the best way to diagnose that is to simply look at TCP dump yep. and see what's coming across. Because if it's been stopped by the firewall, you know, TCP dump won't produce any output, and you'll know instantly that you have a problem. Yep. Now, that's when it gets into things, whenever you're, whenever you're turning these services on and off, if you have a Fedora core-based distribution, there's a great program called Check Config, mm-hmm. and you can say Check Config TFTP on. Check Config, you know, uh, yep. I forget, uh, well, I even forget what the firewall is because I haven't turned mine on in so long. But you can turn that service off as well. And uh, that way, it'll persist in between reboots of your of your host. This is one way of uh, actually bringing up Linux kernel and target platform. But um, in scenarios where uh, you're ready to deploy, or you can live with a small footprint uh, design, you don't need um, all the libraries, you don't need uh, native compilers on your root file system. One way of um, going about booting Linux on a target platform is to um, simply use a uh, JFS2 formatted root file system, small footprint root file system that can live either in onboard flash mm-hmm. or in memory. Yeah. And in such situations, uh, you don't have to necessarily worry about all those services that we talked about. You don't have to worry about DHCP necessarily. You can assign a static IP address. You don't have to set up NFS service. And, well, if you can work with that small... Uh, image, uh, yeah. small root file system slash kernel, that's that's probably um, the the fastest way of getting Linux kernel to we, boot. Yeah, well, I know one of the things we, we changed with our, because we have these various number, of course, as marketing people dream up one per, per day, right? But we have these various number of evaluation programs, and one of the things that we, we, we changed, and of course this took like, what, like a week to explain to someone so they understood it, is that we made it we made the root file system to be completely contained. And so all you had to really do is with TFTP load up the root file system onto the board and then it would boot independent. It wouldn't need the DHCP address, it wouldn't you know wouldn't DHCP for anything, wouldn't need NFS. But you're right. I mean w- if you do happen to get an end of times it has an and many number of distributions like that, but if you do happen to get a distribution similar to that that doesn't have any dependencies, that'll whack out a lot of the, the effort that, that you have to do in order to get your machine set up. But but you're right. I mean, there is sort of like a trade-off there yeah. um, uh, because you won't have all the functionality. Because the other thing is that the NFS mounted root file systems are typically you know everything in the kitchen sink and times yes. two. Well, it's geared towards uh, people that want to uh, develop applications. Oh yeah, um, people that have high requirements for libraries, people that have high requirements for compilers, utilities, and also when when you work with the NFS-mounted root file system, you can simply copy uh, executables on your host machine, which uh, might serve also a purpose of being your development system. Oh, yeah. You can copy those executables from one directory to another, and they would just show up on a target root file system. Um, so uh, that like also... That, yeah, <laughs> that, that accelerates a bit your, your testing phase, and, and you can very quickly verify that whatever you're working on, application, uh-huh. uh, kernel module, everything is is uh, just working well. Yeah, plus it means w- when you accidentally turn your b- board off, you don't lose uh, yeah. all the configuration <laughs> stuff you put on there as well. <laughs> Including <laughs> your log files. Yeah, one of my famous stunts. <laughs> uh, 
I shouldn't admit to that, but I, I do it more than yeah, I do I, I do it more than I should. So we spend a lot of time talking about uh, all those different services, um, talking about how to um, bring up Linux on a target platform, but uh, we haven't really talked about SigWin yet. Um, in case a uh, developer uh, is faced with well, Windows as an operating system for uh, bringing up Linux kernel on target platform or developing an application, um, there is there is one way of... Um, there's one solution to basically work with the GNU uh, tool chains yeah. and, and other open source uh, packages. Mm-hmm. And uh, the answer is SIGWIN, uh, which is really a shell that allows you to execute uh, Unix commands um, and utilities take advantage of Linux libraries yeah. under, under Windows. Um, well, it's great. I know for uh, one of the things that Timesys did is we put a lot of effort... Uh, into making sure that people could do the same sort of development work in the same way on SIGWIN and, and even bring up a board. And we had an engineer here that did a lot of work on getting the NFS server to operate on Windows. So there is NFS services if you want to mount up your, your mount things up that way. And at the same time with SIGWIN, you can also have it set up so that it'll start you know, via the Windows services, different kind yes. of service. But via the Windows services, uh, other things, it'll start up a port map and it'll you know have a... A, a crude sort of XINAT service running if you want to run uh, Sigwin's TFTP. You can also run DHCP. Uh, yeah, so correct. So all those services that we talked about so far, you can you can deploy them equally under Windows. Mm-hmm. A- and that's, as you said, one of the um, things that our engineers have optimized for, for our customers. And we have a number of documents that talk about how <coughs> to set those services up under Sigwin. Yeah. Um, because the truth is, uh, it, it's far more complex than than the setup of those services under Linux. Oh yeah, and they run they run a lot slower too. I, I know that the NFS under Sigwin is it it's uh, doesn't quite perform the way it does under Linux. So put it that way. It's it's not speedy and by all means. We you know one of the things that I recommend uh, for folks is that if they're going to do use Linux, they uh, uh, at least go out and get the, the Solar One's TFTP server. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a really great, it's a, just a little Windows application, runs in user land, and you can point it to where your TFTP directory is. And users seem to have a lot less trouble with that. It's you know, to, it's a free free software. Uh, I think if you just use that Google thing, right, and uh, look for SolarWinds uh, TFTP, you'll find it. And, and especially in a scenario where you, again, work with a small footprint design mm-hmm. uh, that contained image mm-hmm. uh, that includes Linux and, and, and root file system, uh, if you have that TFTP server that you were talking about, uh, that's all you really need, uh, because you, well, then you, you you avoid setting up uh, the port map, the, the setting up the NFS, DHCP. You can follow the route of um, uh, setting the target as a static um, yeah. box and just yeah. We have a we have more more users than you think that from an engineering disciplines point of view, they build their system. Whenever they do a compiler or, or anything like that, that they do testing on, they build the system right down to the root file system image that they put on the board, and they try to avoid doing things like remote mounts because uh, they notice that it changes the way they think about their target board, and it, it also introduces additional assumptions that they sometimes later have to wring out. Um, and so, by doing it that way, they sort of set themselves up and uh, so that the concept of the board's going to be running remote and this file system is something that they're constantly thinking about yeah. opposed to something that they sort of sort out at the end of the process yeah. so I guess along with making a, a decent 
technical decision. Uh, it's also a fairly good managerial decision as well, a, pr- a process type decision. There are some challenges around um, the services or, or how you start those different services under um, Sigwin. Uh-huh. Um, for example, um, when you look into a service panel under Windows, um, usually you see whether a service is started um, or whether it stopped. Um, in case in case of port map and services that you start for, for Linux purposes like um, DHCP and NFS, mm-hmm. um, Windows is not good in reporting the actual status of those utilities. So um, in some cases, you can see under Windows pa- service panel that the service is not running, but in fact, it's running. And another way of finding that out is simply going to uh, your Sigwin shell and finding out whether a specific uh, SIG drive process is execu- executing. Yeah. Yeah, there, 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 isn't, there is an analog in Windows, in, in fact. Uh, if you go to the Varlog messages, uh, it's not... Unfortunately, one of, the, one of the things the geniuses at Sigwin haven't done is created something that dumps that out. Yeah. Uh, that would be really great, because I... I, I it's a segue, but, you know, sorry to segue, but I was using... Because I'm a big Sigwin user, and, you know, there's a clipboard device in Sigwin. Seriously? So yeah, there's dev slash, you know, slash dev slash clipboard. And you can, you know, cat something to dev clipboard and then control V it. Or I thought to myself, these guys are smarter, smarter than you can imagine. You know, so it was. But one of the things that, that they haven't implemented is something that lets you uh, dump out the Windows event log. Mm-hmm. But you can open up. I've always opened up by hitting uh, the Windows key and R for run. And it's event viewer, E-V-E-N-T-V-W-R. Uh, and just press enter and you'll, you'll see an event viewer. Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, slower. So, e v e n t v is in Victor, W is in well W, uh, and then R is in Robert. Okay, uh, event viewer, and, and, and you can pop that up, and, and you can look at. It's not it's not as same, and it's not as comprehensive, and it doesn't work as well as what's uh, available with Varlog messages in Linux, but but it certainly is something. Yeah, it certainly is something. Yeah, yeah well. In any case, uh, if you can avoid uh, playing with those services under Windows, um, I would strongly recommend you do that. Yeah. Uh, because uh, beginning from uh, set setting up of those services all the way through uh, working with them, uh, mm-hmm. most likely you will experience more more challenges than than with wor- working with a Linux host machine. Yeah. Matter of fact, we even recommend to some of our uh, some of our customers that have Windows shops. To again go out and uh, either you know, rescue some yeah. PC from the garbage heap, uh, just to use it to host the board to get, do the initial work to get the board up and running, because it is that much easier. Uh, I'm not saying that Sigwin is inferior by by any means, but it's simply a lot easier if you have that Linux host to get that initial board set up. Yep. Um, so um, we talked about we covered actually the the, the setup. Um, of your host machine and, yeah. and, and target a bit. Well, maybe we didn't talk enough about the target. Um, the the heart of uh, the entire process uh, for the target is really a, a, a bootloader. And depending on the target platform that you work with, if that's a PowerPC board, you would, m- in most cases, uh, end up working with a bootloader called U-Boot. Uh-huh. Um, and on... St- Xscale's ARM uh, platforms you would find either U-Boot or, or Red Boot um, from Red Hat. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, you have the ubiquitous x86 bootloaders as well, right? I forgot almost about that, yes. Uh, PXEs and 
Yeah, you can't. Well, yeah, they have PXE, and then the way the BIOS works on x86, you can always you know put Lilo or Grub on your on your boot sector and have that bootload for you. So a, a lot of um, the complexity of the entire process depends partially um, from how good the bootloader is. Mm-hmm. If the bootloader has some problems with um, um, TFTP or, or downloading the image from the target platform, uh, timing out, um, well, then there's a problem, right? If if the bootloader um, doesn't have uh, a, or can't store environment variables, you'll end up typing in um, your commands every single time you want to boot the platform. Oh, come on, much you, you you open up Gedit or, or <laughs> VI and you, you stick them in there. Uh, how annoying is that? Right? Everyone everyone out there has the, has VI or what, what open another window that has their cache of. Uh, of commands they cut and paste. Well, but in most cases, what you want to do is um, set up the target platform to auto-boot and just uh, reset the power on it and uh, don't worry about uh, Linux coming up on it. Um, you just want to have your entire development environment um, like ready for your application. You don't mean you don't like typing load R-B-E-O-R-C-O-R-O-D? Of course I don't. <laughs> yeah. What was that address again? Yeah, yeah um, that happens to me every single time I work with a different board. Um, yeah, but I do agree. I mean, that's, that's really great. I mean, and that's really, that's one of those things that, I know we did our other Linux yesterday, today, tomorrow, but that's one of the things that's substantially, that has improved substantially in bootloaders is their scripting capabilities at startup. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that's a treat. I mean, it really is a treat in that you can set your board up that it'll start reasonably. You build, usually build it in so it'll pause a few seconds while yep, you're doing your yep. dev work, and uh, it takes a lot of effort out of um, uh, takes a lot of effort out of getting your board started. Uh, so unless you like to type that, <laughs> there's actually one uh, pitfall that some of the users uh, run into, um, which is when you boot the Linux kernel uh, with those bootloaders. Uh, um, each Linux kernel has uh, a command line um, or kernel command line where, um, yeah. uh, well, you pass different parameters to the kernel. For example, how you set up the, the initial console uh, console, and, and how you set up an IP address, uh, the kind of root file system that you want to mount. Uh, if you use a bootloader with um, defined uh, boot arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to overwrite the set, the settings that you have built into your kernel. Yeah. Uh, so you have to be very careful when you get a new board that, um, uh, well, take a look at your environment variables and make sure that the boot arguments uh, in a bootloader match your requirements because they will take the precedence over um, the arguments that are built into your kernel. Yeah, I agree. It, it is a little bit too helpful. And and that's another one of those things where you really don't think about the uh, the bootloader switching things around, and then you're on a then you're, you're then you're on another you know hour hour long uh, goose uh, wild goose chase for uh, sort that out. So we're getting waved at by the guys. Uh, yeah. We have someone here that helps us, and he say, "Hey, you're you're over happens you're again. Over. You have to watch." <laughs> and I, um, so um, so I, I do know that there are there are some. Uh, things that we because we've been doing a couple of these so far and we had some people come in with some comments uh, uh, so again thanks thanks for writing in we appreciate uh, appreciate your writing I know one of the things we um, uh, one of the things that we've been working on is making the, the voice quality better and, and I know that uh, we have 
we have someone here whose name is Alex that does the, the post-production work. And I know he's been working really hard to make sure things sound uh, as good as they can, um, uh, given the constraints that we have for for our podcast. But if you want to send us notes, you can uh, send us. You can always send us a note at podcast at timesys.com, um, or you can visit us at uh, timesys.com. And I think if you go to lldn.timesys.com, I wonder. We, it would be really nice if we just had one web address, wouldn't it? It but would. It, yeah, I think if you visit <laughs> us at lldn.timesys.com, there's a there's a podcast button on there too, where you can leave some notes. But uh, so again, we, I, we, we sincerely hope that the, that the audio quality is better uh, this time around. Um, uh, uh, well, I would like to actually uh, at the end also recap what we talked about. Um, I told you we wouldn't forget. Uh, I know that you told me. Um, but uh, so today we talked about um, what it takes to set up a host environment, um, both on the Linux and uh, Windows side, and, and we uh, covered a bit of. Uh, um, the complexities around um, getting the Linux kernel up and running on a target, yeah. and when there's there's three there's three tips to remember there, right? First is turn off the firewall, right? Yep. Second is go to go to uh, Fry's or wherever, spend nineteen dollars on another Ethernet card, yep. and dual home your machine. And third is look in Varlog messages. Uh, Very helpful. Yes, it's the big three. If you remember those three things, most of your other problems should uh, well, I shouldn't say they go away, but at least to be it would be easier to find. And then we also had some other questions that okay. related a little bit to uh, what people wrote back for other webinars. We had one guy that um, uh, who's, who wrote in and said, "Hey, what about um, uh, what about different languages on target on, on targets now? Uh, seems like embedded is moving away from just C." And I, I know that's one of the things that I think we want to talk about. It's, it's an interesting topic because we you could. At this point, embedded devices are powerful enough that it's not unreasonable that you use Python yeah. or Java or Perl or any other number of languages that would have just given a, a, a old-time yeah. embedded engineer a conniption fit. And As a matter of fact, they are all included in our default development root file system. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess the little mini mini replies. Yeah. Um, yeah, we know there's. The, we know our customers are out there using TCL and you know and Lisp on their target machines and uh, and I think we should probably spend some time to talk about uh, what the state of that is and what's you know what, what the state of the art is and uh, what we see people out there using what we see them uh, successful with. I agree with you 100 percent that we should take that as a, as a input for our planning of next podcasts and. Uh, yeah turn that into a separate episode perhaps we also get questions too you'll probably be better talking about this than me much uh, about about so the, the, the question is always well I want to do a you know multimedia device and I want to have a screen and I want to update and you know I want to show video what processor should I use <laughs> well there are so many processors on the market these days um, there is um, a Da Vinci, a famous Da Vinci processor from TI oh yeah there oh, yeah. is um, there are new processors coming from um Manufacturers like Freescale and, and, and well, Atmel, for yeah. that matter, uh, they all are very interesting. Um, they integrate new features. They are more powerful. Um, some of those processors, they um, implement um, the new ARM 11 core. Yeah. Um, so there, there are a lot of advancements. But, uh, you know, if you're looking for a processor for your next project um, you can definitely visit one of our websites LLDN we keep a bit of information 
on um, the processors that, that we provide um, Linux links for. Um, and we provide a bit of description of what uh, the peripherals on the, on, of that particular processor and, and how you can use it. Um, uh, one of the latest Atmel processors, for that matter, is, is very interesting. It, it comes with a, uh, an integrated, well, on reference platform uh, LCD displays. Oh, um, yeah. it, it comes with a sound um, uh, chipsets. Uh, it's all in one small little package that you can very easily take advantage of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and as a matter of fact, what uh, we'll try to start doing from now on is um, between the uh, regular episodes, podcast episodes, we'll try to have a, a, a much shorter episodes where we would... Um, introduce the new processors that we get to work with uh, where we could talk a bit about um, you know what those peripherals on on system on chips are and how uh, people can leverage those um, features in in their um, own designs yeah yeah that would be a little bit better I think sometimes in the press release because uh, I know we issue a press release and we stick out a, a page that, that describes what the processor does. Uh, but we do have a lot of folks that just like to. It's easier for them to listen. Uh, Audio and, press release. And, yeah, so uh, so it's a little bit easier for them to, to process that way. Hey, you know, there's one other uh, other. We actually got it from a, from a few folks, uh, and it has to do with uh, somewhat really the processor is. I want my Linux distribution to be small. How small can it be? Uh, you guys sort of talked about that in your in your presentation, and I, I do know we have. Uh, uh, we, we will be doing a small fruit file system uh, webinar in the future. As a matter of fact, uh, we're going to be at the, the CLF show in San Jose, and we're going to be Times is going to be doing a talk on making a small root file system. Uh, uh, along, yeah. So along with the other, wrong, along with the webinar, uh, I think we have a webinar on that topic too. But we will, we'll set up a podcast for that because there's a lot of ticks, uh, tips and techniques and strategies and uh, some things that are very common sense. Um, that you can do that'll that you can really take a lot of space out of your root file system. Yep, um, we can easily spend uh, uh, an hour talking about it or more. But uh, oh yeah, it's going to be a very interesting episode. So uh, um, I would like to invite everybody to it already today. Yeah, and like I said, uh, yeah, thanks for um, thanks for listening in. It says questions or comments. You can send them to us at uh, uh, podcast at timesus.com. Uh, or visit us instead at lldn.timesus.com. Uh, right, right on the front page when you log in, there's a there's a you know listen to our podcast. It's, it's easy. There's an icon of a guy with big elephant ears. You can click on that, and uh, and you'll see what I know. We have some episodes. We have uh, at least I think three episodes on there now. Yeah. And there's even a very interesting uh, uh, interview with Thomas Glexner. Yeah. yeah, that does the um, uh, that does the real time uh, uh, work on the two six kernel. So again. Th Thanks, and thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by TimeSys. Check out our new site to get free code, discuss, and learn about embedded Linux development. Go to timesys.com today.